It's August 14, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and it's a busy day on the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. Well, today in the news, we'll hear from the Uber team as they prepare for the official launch of their on-demand black car service here in Honolulu. Then Mary Donahue from the UHC Grand Extension will tell us about the upcoming rainwater catchment workshop. Finally, we will explore scanning the skies for asteroids, especially the ones that might have a close encounter with Earth. Have your questions and suggestions ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. Well, more than two decades after making headlines with glow-in-the-dark mice, researchers from the University of Hawaii have now helped colleagues in the Middle East create a batch of rabbits that, under a black light, glow, grow, glow bright green. <laughs> the rabbits were born two weeks ago after researchers injected a fluorescent protein from jellyfish DNA into the embryo of their mother. Two of the eight baby rabbits in their litter carried the glowing gene, representing a higher success rate than previous experiments. The international scientists collaboration stemmed from the ongoing work of Ryuzo Yanagimachi and Stefan Moisiati, professors at the UH Institute for Biogenesis Research. In addition to creating the -the glow-in-the-dark mice in the 1980s, Yanagimachi pioneered in vitro fertilization techniques that are widely used today and created the first cloned mouse in 1997. His colleague Moisiati, who has been at UH since 1984, is a native of Turkey. While the green rabbits are a striking sight, they are a demonstration of more practical science. Scientists hope to be able to introduce specific genes that would affect the milk produced by female rabbits. This, in turn, could lead to new ways to produce rare or expensive medicines. The results of the UH team's visit to Turkey in November 2011 are still unfolding. They've also produce transgenic sheep and in November um, and that was back in November Turkey is expected to welcome its first transgenic lamb meanwhile the UH researchers are working with colleagues in China to create transgenic pigs now of course this is uh, quite interesting to me I mean we've had uh, Moisiati on the show and and they were talking about some of their uh, you know sort of gene techniques Splicing. how they introduce the you know sort of these genes to uh, have specific characteristics. Right, and in terms of having cool photos to use in newspapers or on TV, glow-in-the-dark mice, glow-in-the-dark uh, 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 rabbits certainly right. do, but basically they're using it as a marker to demonstrate whether or not a gene has been passed on. Right. But uh, why not do use the glow-in-the-dark thing? What I like about it is that you know, they're talking about if you're trying to create uh, pharmaceuticals, um, you might build an expensive lab and have expensive staff, or you could somehow find a way to have creatures generate the pharmaceuticals through their milk, if you can do that with their genes. Well, and again, you know, of course, there's a lot of controversy about Certainly. GMO, and of course, this is a genetic modified organism. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of curious to see where this research will lead and what other types of traits they might start to perhaps splice into you know, these animals. Right. Well, I'll tell you what. If you want to serve me up a glow-in-the-dark pork chop, I'll, I'll try that. You will? I will. I think I'd pass on the jellyfish influence. <laughs> anyway, a uh, f- couple of quick stories I wanted to share with you. One of the nation's largest energy firms formed a Hawaii company last year to focus on local projects, including a proposed undersea cable project that would link the power grids of Oahu to other islands. Now, next, um, Nextra Energy Hawaii what has formally notified the Hawaii State Public Utilities Commission that it would like to participate in discussions about the undersea cable, currently spearheaded by Castle & Cook. The developer is exploring a 200-megawatt wind farm on Lanai. Yeah, and uh, next era, they're based in Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, this is 
good because they're they're putting their hat into the ring basically. So uh, next era energy. Next up, the first Hawaii uh, space exploration analog and simulation, or high seas. Their mission ended yesterday as six researchers emerged from their big island habitat after four months of living like astronauts. And the team did announce, as we uh, previewed last week, the winners of their space food recipe contest. Uh, They included no-crust quiche muffins for breakfast, spam fried rice as the best entree, and dark matter cake. For dessert, the mission was just the first part of a three-year NASA-funded grant, and we're going to hear more about them. Yeah, and you know, bear in mind that uh, these folks were in sort of sequestered in a dome on the Big Island on Mauna Loa for four months, so they were simulating astronauts that were perhaps on the moon or perhaps Mars, mm. and looking at uh, you know cooking as a way to sort of enhance the environment, do more things that might be. Uh, more engaging than, you know, taking it out of a freeze-wrapped sure. container. D- certainly, absolutely. So uh, hopefully we're going to be able to get uh, them mm-hmm. in the studio to talk about some of the things they discovered, including their laundry challenges. And moving on to the Hawaii Tech Calendar, this Saturday brings the International Galaxy Forum to the Big Island. The theme is 21st Century Education, setting sail for the stars, and it's being presented by Pisces the Pacific International Space Center for Exploration Systems, and the International Lunar Observatory Association. The High Seas Mars Food Mission is among the many topics to be covered. It takes place at uh, UH Hilo on Saturday, August 17th. For more information, you can visit galaxyforum.org. Now, last month we told you about the soft launch of the Uber Black Car Service here in Honolulu, and this week the company is planning its official launch. And in advance of its gala event tomorrow night, we are pleased to have Austin Geit here in the studio to bring us up to speed. Now, Austin, who arrived last night from San Francisco, is the head of Uber's expansion team. Welcome to Bite Marks Cafe, Austin. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. And, of course, uh, you know, you've been involved with uh, with uh, Uber for, I guess, from the very beginnings from from the smaller That's right. yeah and so kind of give us a little brief description of how the this growth has taken place uh, with Uber sure so i mean i was right out of school at berkeley mm-hmm. and so it was a, a neat first gig to be a part of and it was just four of us and uh it was kind of a wild idea and it made a ton of sense of connecting uh professional drivers uh with with riders who needed who needed a car on demand through through a phone service and so it was just four of us and and we just kind of took a shot at it and it it just blew up in san francisco and then the thought was let's if it works here it can work anywhere and so so, i'm kind of curious now you were there from the very beginning and you were part of the uh let's say the genesis of this idea i mean what was it like were you guys sitting around saying oh we got to do something you know we're going to graduate pretty soon or you know did you say something like hey, there's this technology that's coming together, the confluence of the web and, and social media, and, and are there sort of traditional businesses that could be disrupted? I mean, what, what was kind of going through your minds at that point? Uh, I think the thought, I mean, Travis, our, our CEO, is he thinks in, in terms of big, and so he's like, this is going to be disruptive, but I, I think we were just kind of, you know, we, I don't know, I don't know we knew the the proportions and how big it could be. And mm-hmm. so it was certainly, I remember, you know, the first night where we did three trips, we were, we popped some champagne and, and we were all cheering. And now there's thousands of rides going on at, mm-hmm. at any, in any city at any moment for the mm-hmm. most part. So it's, it's just been, it's just been a rocket ship. It's, it's been really yeah, exciting. It's exciting. Yeah, in fact, you've been expanding quite a bit most recently in Asia and Africa and um, Honolulu is just one of many cities that this is deploying in. Mm-hmm. Also, Uber off- has a wide variety of offerings. You know, they have 
have the black car service, which we're we're starting with here in Honolulu. They've even you've even experimented uh, just trying like Uber helicopters in mm-hmm. New York and things That's like right. that. How do you decide on a city by city basis what service is going to work there? Um, you know, how much research goes into moving into a new location? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one of the first things we do is is hire local where I don't know Honolulu. So I, you know, I, I, I certainly do my research, but then it's once we hire a, a local team, it's for them to to figure out how we market it. And so um, if we do on-demand ice cream as a stunt, like we need to know, will that excite people in Honolulu? And it's different everywhere. So we've done uh, all sorts of little, you know, in Paris, it was we do on demand moto taxis because that's big there. So it just it depends on the market. And part of it is having that local team figure that out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say that if uh, you did on demand ice cream here, it would probably do quite well. I bet. <laughs> now, you know, we um, we had the privilege of kind of hearing about the Uber coming into town and doing um, being a part of some of their soft launch activities. And it's interesting because, you know, the, the guys uh, um, who came in, uh, Paul and uh, Tomas, they were very uh, respectful of, you know, sort of the new culture or the new environment <clears throat> and wanted to sort of get a gauge as to what was going on. And, and I, I, th- I find it kind of interesting how you actually determine how many cars will be, you know, how many contracted cars are going to be necessary for the demand and how do you kind of grow that over time? Obviously, it's going to be small at the beginning, but as you start to ramp up, uh, you know, there's going to be the need for more drivers. So how do you kind of balance those two, the demand and the supply? Absolutely. It's it's so fragile. So it's um, there's a lot of data that goes on behind the scenes of looking at, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can look at utilization and we can see, OK, you know, at any given hour, where did we have on, you know, too many cars and, and where where do we need to encourage drivers to come on? And, and because we, you know, we're not. They're not our cars. They come on when they want. That's part of what they love about it is the flexibility. So, But we can, uh, we do have tools in the app that encourage them when they can make more money. So when are people opening the app? They they have access to where and when so that um, it's it's pretty fantastic how on point we can get to mm-hmm. predict to predict the supply and demand. And that is certainly part of the secret sauce of Uber, the supply and the demand and, 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 and all of that. But one of the other things that I think is curious is that it's also the rates kind of adjust based on demand. And that's something that I think uh, people can certainly understand. If it's New Year's Eve, you might pay more than you might on Tuesday night, for example. So uh, has that been um, another key to your success? Yeah. No, I think getting the pricing right is is really important. And we don't, you know, we're, we, we've shifted pricing before. We Part of soft launch is figuring out, you know, is this too high? Is this too low? Um, and you know, we do surge price, uh, do s- surge pricing on on New Year's, where um, which has can sometimes be controversial when really it's it's just uh, on New Year's drivers can go pick up and make more money uh, on the side of the road, and so it's um, it's an opportunity to get a car, and so it's it's kind of basic supply and demand mm-hmm. where uh, if we need to do a good job of making sure we're getting more and more cars on the road, but there's also really there's spike times when it's raining or snowing where uh, we need we need to incentivize the drivers to come on, and people um, need to be paying willing to pay a little bit more to to ensure that. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. worked quite well. It's been it's been really neat. So Austin, you got a big event coming up tomorrow. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we like to um, we like to throw uh, kind of pay homage to the city when we when we get in and and kind of connect with some of the the tastemakers of the city um, and and really kind of welcome really have them welcome us by by paying homage to them and so um, just getting a, a really eclectic crew of. 
in every rung from from real estate to to fashion to to government and getting them all together to kind of explain it and just uh, get the drinks going and have a have a good night. Good, good. So are you going to be uh, saying a few words tomorrow? I will. Oh, good. All I right. will. Look forward to that. So if somebody wanted to try the Uber service, although I would imagine it will be at full launch tomorrow versus the current uh, soft launch, uh, how does someone try Uber? Sure. So uh, they can download the app. It's on uh, iPhone, Android. Um, they can also go to the website, uber.com. Mm-hmm. Um You'll enter your credit card just one time when you sign up, and then you'll never you'll never have to use it again. You'll there's no need to tip. There's no fumbling with cash. You just request a car, um, and you get in and get out. And so it's it's a pretty seamless experience. Yeah, it's great. I used it. I loved it. Fantastic. Good well, thanks, uh, thanks, Austin, for joining us. Thank you, guys. And uh, now we want to welcome uh, Mary Donahue from the UHC Grand Extension to tell us about the upcoming rainwater catchment workshop that's uh, coming up uh, in the very near future. Welcome to the show, Mary. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Great. Now, uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'll am i tell you about my catchment system. You know, it's I a got bucket. A, it's a big bucket. Okay, a big And bucket. a gutter. I got to have a gutter. So it takes all the rainwater off the roof and it pours it into the bucket. Mm-hmm. And then, I, you know, I use the bucket to, to water plants and stuff. Like that. But it's a little bit more sophisticated than that, right? It is. But the best thing about catchment is there are systems from just above a bucket, mm-hmm. a rain barrel, all the way to commercial or industrial systems that can serve an entire building. And so uh, the technology is there and it can be applied at multiple scales. So really there's something for everyone and every price. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I spent some time on the Big Island and certainly that's where I saw a lot of catchment systems. But I think one of the things that I got to understand, especially uh, as your event is coming up, is that it's not something just for rural locations. It's not just for somebody who happens to live way far out past uh, you know, municipal service for water, but that uh, some cities and some, some uh, urban areas, it does have ac- uh, applicability. It is something that people should probably consider where they might otherwise rule it out. Uh, sure. And um, even here on Oahu up at Tantalus, there are folks who rely completely on catchment for their water, um, where the municipal water isn't available. Mm-hmm. Um, the the most immediate benefit for people who in, engage in catchment is that right away they're going to see a cost savings because every gallon that they can save and capture themselves is one that they don't have to purchase from the municipal water service. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. also that's a great conservation measure so is uh, is this a, a workshop that has been offered before, or is this kind of the first time that you're offering it? This is a workshop that UHC Grant has partnered with the American Rainwater Catchment Systems Association. That's a long name. We call it ARCSA. Mm-hmm. And it's the national uh, organization that accredits professionals working in this field. And these workshops have been offered on the mainland, but not here in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So before, our folks had to go to the mainland to get this training and accreditation. So we wanted to bring it here to Oahu and get folks um, coming here. It's at the UH Manoa campus, and those who complete the training will be uh qualified to become an accredited accredited professional with ARCSA. Mm-hmm. So no. that's like, uh, I mean, I would imagine that like Bert, uh, not accredited, but he figured out his bucket. So yes. that's fine. But if you wanted to do something um, on a higher on a higher level or perhaps do it as a business, um, you exactly. would want to seek this, this accreditation. And then this um, this is primarily sort of focused toward what the what community, what kind of business community are you attracting to this workshop? Is it, is it the developers, the contractors? Who are they? Well, this is a technical training workshop. So we're going to get into uh, the design the systems, the state-of-the-art filtration, uh, the engineering, uh, everything about 
all aspects of rainwater catchment. Mm -hmm. And so there is some advantage to having a familiarity with the systems, but we are encouraging professionals. um, We have some state and local government folks coming, um, but professionals who want to get into this or who are already serving the community can get the um, state-of-the-art knowledge and, um, you know, architects, designers, plumbers, um, uh, all kinds of folks like that. I can see a solar contractor saying, hey, why not also add uh, catchment deployment to my menu of services, especially if in addition to the cost savings that someone is thinking environmentally for their home. We actually have a solar provider that's registered. Oh, oh, fantastic. Yeah, so you're, you're exactly. Yeah, so it it sort of makes sense when there's a lot of different sort of uh, renewables and alternative energy solutions. And, and, you know, if you're going to be green, you might as well catch your own water. Well, Bert, that's exactly right, because there's something that we're learning about uh, called the energy-water nexus, Mm -hmm. and that's how energy and water are just inextricably coupled. And it takes water to make energy, and it takes energy to produce clean water. And so savings in one automatically Mm -hmm. create savings in the other, and so this is another aspect that we're very encouraged about. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about, like, what is the cutting edge in technology? Um, well, you know, it's certainly not a bucket. It's probably not the system that I had at a house out in Volcano, which was which seemed like just a very large bucket with the mesh net over it. I mean, what are some of the new things that people are doing that uh, the industry is excited about? Well, um, that's why we have the experts coming in ah, to help ah. us learn the cutting edge um, services and tools that are available. Um, we do have some great service providers here in the islands, and particularly on the Big Island, Mm -hmm. but also Maui. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are um, dual filtration systems, UV filters. It's very important that the storage tanks be sized and maintained appropriately because while if you want to use it for landscaping, um, that's a pretty simple application. But as you start getting into gray water, flushing your toilet, and also those folks who use it for potable water, it's very important to have the um, microbial filtration, um, UV filtration, and so forth. Great. So where can somebody find more information if they wanted to check this out? There are still spots available. It's Monday and Tuesday of next week, Mm -hmm. and it's at the UH Manoa campus. And you can register at www.arcsa.com. Org. That's A R C S A dot org. And I also have a phone number. Okay. 512-617-6528. Okay. And we'll definitely put the uh, link up on our show notes uh, later on tonight. Thank you. So we want to thank uh, both Austin and Mary for joining us. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Ed Lou and Rob Jedicki both to talk about close encounters with asteroids. What options do we have if an asteroid is headed straight for Earth? We certainly don't want to just be able to call Bruce Willis. We'd love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation, so please give us a call, 941-3689, or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're also monitoring Twitter. You can reach us at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Shakespeare's As You Like It is filled with charm and whimsy, but there's another dimension. The new Hawaii Shakespeare Festival production is described as the Bard's beloved, truly homoerotic family values play. It's full of gender confusion to keep you guessing, and we'll sort it all out tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation.
Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Linda Tucker, author of Saving the White Lions. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my campaign to save Africa's most sacred animal, the white lions. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Mars Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Ed Liu and Rob Jedeke. Ed is a former astronaut who flew three space missions, including six months on the International Space Station. He is now the chairman and CEO of the B612 Foundation, which seeks to protect Earth from asteroid impacts by finding such asteroids in time to deflect them. Rob Meanwhile is an astronomer at the Institute for Astronomy and near-Earth object specialist working with the Atlas Project and PanStars. Is the asteroid deflection the stuff of science fiction or reality? We'd love to hear your comments or questions. And of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689. From the neighbor islands, Ed and Rob, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Laura, it's good to be here. It's great to be on HPR. Yeah, good. Good to be back. Yeah. Now, Ed, before we talk about asteroids, I did want to jump in at the very beginning because even on the front page of today's paper was our high seas project and coming up with food to make it a little less monotonous to eat in space. So with your long time on the International Space Station, how would you feel about the requirement or ability to mix and match and prepare your own foods using various ingredients? Well, one of the things that's underappreciated about uh, being in space for long periods of time is how important the food is. And uh, if the food, if you eat the same thing over and over and over again, I don't care how good it is, it gets boring pretty quick. And uh, So when you were up at the space station, would you have loved to have some rice? rice? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I got to say, um, as, as an Asian guy... Um, they they had rice up there, but it was the worst rice. <laughs> I mean, it was like sort of like that minute rice stuff. Uh-huh. It was terrible. So I actually asked my um, my then fiance, my now wife, to to buy these uh, packages of uh, you know like the pre cooked you know the sticky rice mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the real rice, mm-hmm. um, which she actually got from some of it actually came from Zippy's, I believe. Wow. They have those packages which you can mm-hmm. microwave. Right. Well, we could heat them up up there too. So we, a bunch of those went up to the space station. That's awesome. So you, you, did you take some chili too? I love the, you know, Zippy's chili. Uh, no, I didn't get any of that, but uh, I had some good stuff I could put on it. We got uh, um, we had some really good Cajun food. Oh. Um, so we had uh, crawfish etouffee, which you put on the rice and throw in a whole lot of Tabasco. It was really good. Good, good. So um, and, so and that sriracha sauce. Ah, uh, so did you, you, were able, you were able to take some sriracha sauce up there too? Yeah, you got to have some of that, right? Oh, good, I love good. it. Well, um, the real reason we had you, we we welcomed you both to the show, is to talk specifically about asteroids. And here at Bite Marks Cafe, we talk a lot about pan stars. We talk about neos, near Earth objects, and we often wonder what the the uh, what the prospects are. Both is both what the threat is and what the prospects are to avoid them. Um, so, um, Ed, I mean, this foundation it, it's focused on this. So. From the, the expert's mouth, how worried should we be about something coming through space and striking the Earth? Well, these things do hit the Earth. February 15th, we had an asteroid, a small one, hit uh, near in Russia, near the city of Chelyabinsk. And it had an explosive energy of about 30 times the bomb used over Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't small, um, meaning... Uh, but as asteroids go, it was actually pretty small. So the people of that city got pretty lucky, actually, because it was only... It was, it, 
all it did was break a few hundred thousand windows. And uh, it was 60 miles away from the city. So it wasn't really that close. That's the distance from, you know, Honolulu to, uh, you know, the far side of Maui. Mm-hmm. Right. So that is not a close hit, but it still b- broke every window in that city and, and even imploded a few buildings. So uh, it could have been a lot worse. And the larger asteroids are, are substantially worse. Now, Rob, you know, we, um, you know, when that asteroid did make the news, there was another asteroid that people were tracking. And I know we reported it on the show because, you know, it was making the news about uh, its close encounter. But the, what was interesting was at the same time that asteroid sort of flared out, you know, and people got pictures of it, which wasn't even being detected. So I'm kind of curious, what mechanisms do we have to actually detect asteroids currently? Well, there's a number of projects currently operational. Most of them are in the United States. The most successful one at finding asteroids right now, the near-Earth asteroids right now, is one here in Hawaii, the Mm -hmm. Pan-STARRS Project on Haleakala. It's the single telescope that's finding the most near-Earth asteroids per year right now. And the other facilities are in Arizona, the the main two main facilities there. Uh, They're really good. And so together we're finding something on the order of a couple thousand NEOs per year nowadays, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, what we want to do is we want to try and build here in Hawaii now a new system we're calling the Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System, ATLAS, Atlas. which we hope to actually use to survey the entire night sky every single night four times. And the great thing about that system is that it will give uh, some notice, days to weeks to maybe a month's notice, of impacts more like the Chelyabinsk impact. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the the Pan Stars, the the program in Arizona is called the Catalina Sky Survey Sentinel project that Ed's working on. They're finding slightly larger asteroids that might impact years or decades in advance. Atlas will give uh, a warning time for impacts like the Chelyabinsk impact. Mm-hmm. So like the the two that occurred, you know, um, like we were just talking about, one was detected and the other one was was it not detected? So the, how, how did it sort of get through the uh, our current sort of detection system? That, great, great question. The the one that was known that came by right. that that hit the news before it actually showed up, and everybody mm-hmm. was sort of watching for it. That was a very interesting object. It was quite large. It came quite close to the Earth, and unfortunately, it didn't strike the Earth. Mm-hmm. The Chelyabinsk impact, that was total coincidence, happened at the exact the same time was a very small asteroid, actually, like Ed was saying. It's only something like 20, 30 yards across. And it came in a, it, it was sort of pathologically arranged in how it approached <laughs> the Earth. It came out of the direction of the sun. Now, uh, asteroid surveys have to observe at night. We can't see stars. We can't see asteroids in the daytime. And this particular asteroid came out of the daytime sky. So we could not have seen it. If Atlas had been operational, it still would not have seen it because it just came out of the daytime sky. Mm-hmm. The only way to find that kind of an object was would be something, would be with a system that was uh, a space-based survey that could be in orbit around the Earth at a very large distance that could actually monitor the whole space around the Earth for that kind of an object. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Ed, you know, you've also, you've spent time in space, so I would imagine more so than even those of us on Earth. You feel the vulnerability that uh, life might have from things coming from space, and uh, you you worked and founded this organization called the B612 Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you can't help notice when you're looking at the Earth from space how the Earth has been shaped by asteroid impacts because you can also look at the moon at the same time. You can see both of them at the same time. And the moon is covered with craters, and the Earth is too, except that most of them are either under the surface of the water or they've been worn or weathered out by either vegetation or rivers or things like that. But the Earth has been hit actually more times than the moon per unit area 
just because it has stronger gravity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, the Earth's been hit a lot, and, and it's, it's plainly obvious when you get to uh, see, you have the privilege of seeing both the Earth and the Moon at the same time. Now, our organization was named after uh, the name of the asteroid home of the Little Prince, if you ever read the novel uh, The mm-hmm, Little Prince. Mm-hmm. He lived on an asteroid called B612. And uh, we named it after that because one of the key points about that book is that uh, the phrase out of the book is, what is essential is invisible to the eye. And that means that sometimes the most important things aren't the things that are in front of you day to day, the things you think about day to day, the things that aren't common. Um, But maybe they're the things that are out there, but that you're not thinking about all that that Mm -hmm. aren't right in front of you. And uh, asteroids are really like that because they're rare. By rare meaning a major impact only hits the Earth, um, you know, every uh, hundred or, or so years. Uh, and uh, that it's like hurricanes, right? You know, how often does a major hurricane hit Hawaii? Hmm. Right. We had uh, Iniki uh, 20 years ago. Um, but it's not very common, right? But if you go around thinking, man, a hurricane is never going to hit here. Well, then someday, you know, you're going to have you're going to be totally unprepared for when it does happen. And we want to prevent the same thing from happening to the Earth. Mm-hmm. Now, we're talking to Ed Liu, uh, astronaut, been uh, several times up to the International Space Station and CEO of the B612612 Foundation. And, of course, uh, Rob Jedeke, who is an astronomer over at the Institute for Astronomy and, and working on uh, near-Earth objects. And we want to um, encourage all of you, if you have a comment or question about asteroids or perhaps even space in general, give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands. You can reach us at one 941 3689 We have a caller who's been patiently waiting, Dr. Joshi, who's uh, from Maui. He has a, actually a question about Mars because we kind of started the show off talking a little bit about Mars. And uh, Dr. Joshi, I want to welcome you to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha. Thank you very much. Sure. It was a great show. I've uh, enjoyed hearing the uh, both the speakers. Um, and I agree it would be very interesting to be able to see both the Earth and the Moon and see how similar they are in terms of uh, crater activity. Is there a particular website that has both of those together? That was just a question that I had when I was listening. Oh, Ed, so you were describing sort of seeing the Earth and the Moon, especially when you're up on the, uh, you know, the space station. Is there, are there photos that have both... Uh, you know, uh, planetary objects. I, and I'm going to put it on a plug for uh, a talk that I'm going to give tomorrow because I'm going to show one of the pictures I took from space. Okay. It shows the, uh, shows the moon up above the horizon of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the way, the talk is tomorrow uh, evening. It's a public lecture. Um, it is at Kennedy Theater. It starts at uh, 7.30 p.m. 7.30 p.m. And uh, if, you, if you want to see that picture, I'll, I'll show it there. But it, um, you can find other pictures that are taken by astronauts showing both. But um, at least to me, that one picture is special because I got to take it. So. Well, is there, a, is there, for example, a map of Earth that strips away all of that pesky water and humans and, you know, things and just shows you where there, where this long history of asteroid impacts are? I've actually seen a map like that. It shows the, all the known asteroid impacts on Earth, mm-hmm. and it shows a few hundred uh, impacts. And the thing to know about that map is that it is woefully incomplete. It, those are the ones that we know about. I, um so thank you very much. May I ask my question why I really called? Sure, sure yes, sure. absolutely. Okay, uh, my question is that as a physician, I know that uh, at 100% CO2, people appear dead. However, 
if you then introduce the right amount of oxygen at the right amount of time, they can actually come back to life. And I was wondering if anything like that had been considered by NASA for astronauts going to Mars where you create a 100% CO2 atmosphere so you don't have to provide food or anything, and then you can bring them back to life by injecting the right amount of oxygen and so forth into the environment. So is that like a version of sort of a suspended animation kind of a situation for, you know, like long space travel? Ed? Well, I, well actually, it, it happened accidentally because we found that when we did this with animals, when we gave them 100% CO2, we thought we would kill them. And then when we put back normal uh, gases, a normal concentration of oxygen, they came back to life. So I think they've actually, you know, some people might have been crazy enough to try it with individuals also to see if that happened also. That's a, a fascinating question. Um, thanks for your call, uh, Dr. Jossi. But Ed, I mean, would you want to be uh, <laughs> a CO2 encased for a longer mission to Mars, for example? I have never heard of any work like this, so I, I can't comment on it. You know, of course, science fiction always uh, talks about uh, sort of this suspended animation, you know, kind of uh, uh, scenario for, for deep space travel. But I don't know. I mean, you guys are more close to the actual science than we are. I mean, what have you heard? Well, I'm not an astronaut, but I'd sure want to be awake for the whole trip. I just want to be out there watching everything and seeing everything go by and uh, watching the approach of the planet, saying goodbye to Earth. I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd want to be awake for the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. I think part okay. of it is, you know, the preservation with some, with of some life. some good rice while you're out there. There you go. <laughs> but, you know, tissues and things, that's why freezing is an issue because you would damage tissues. So, yeah, it's certainly a, a complex problem. Now, you know, when, um, when we talk about asteroids and uh, Tunguska was uh, probably the – most, kind of a recent uh, occurrence. It, it uh, devastated a good, what is it, a couple of hundred thousand acres? I mean, it was a pretty yeah, large, I mean, a, it was kind of equated to about 500 uh, Hiroshima bombs, right? That's right, yeah. And and what is the likelihood of that happening again, that size of an asteroid? That size of an asteroid uh, hits the Earth every three, four hundred years or so. Mm-hmm. So that means that, uh, and, and that was probably in the range of about uh, 40 meters across, so 40 yards across. So if, in other words, if you picture it sitting on a football field, it, you know, from the goal line to the 40-yard line, that's about the size of the mm-hmm. of that asteroid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those, so that, you know, the other way to think about that is that uh, that means that the odds in your lifetime are about 25% or so of something like that happening somewhere on the surface of the Earth, a multi, an, an explosion large enough to destroy uh, a huge metropolitan area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, so it's uh, it's a bit like roulette. It's like cosmic roulette, right? You know, you can go to Las Vegas and you can win sometimes, but you can never win forever, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that the whole city of Las Vegas was built on that principle, right? And, right. It, wor- and it works. And the odds thing is, 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 is an interesting way to visualize things, but, of course, there's no reason why two might come within weeks of each other, for example. That's so true. It is fascinating that uh, there's what we think we know, and then there's what we know we don't know, and then there's the stuff we don't know we don't know. And I think that's where a lot of people are, are focused on this. So the B612 uh, Foundation is, is proposing something called the Sentinel Project. Uh, Ed, can you tell us about that? Yeah, the, the key thing to know is that we can actually deflect asteroids if we know about them early enough. And uh, that means having years to decades of notice before something's going to hit us. You can actually send a small probe out there, just run into it, and divert it slightly enough so that that asteroid won't hit the Earth. And that means that we could actually protect our planet, prevent great damage, uh, beat those odds, uh, as long as you know where all the asteroids are. 
because you can't deflect an asteroid that you haven't found yet. Mm-hmm. And so that's why in projects like PanSTARS here, you know, the projects that, that Rob here is working on are so incredibly important. And that's why I think Sentinel is going to be incredibly important because uh, you can only do so much of finding these asteroids from the ground. Uh, eventually, if you really want to find all of them, you really need to go uh, into outer space and observe from out there. And that's what Sentinel is going to do. It's going to really give us a fighting ch- chance to prevent the next large asteroid impact. So, so Rob, uh, you know, you had described some of the asteroids that you're tracking with PanStars and then with this uh, uh, the new Atlas system. Are there any limitations that you see with the land-based systems and, and perhaps you know, the uh, Sentinel would help address? Oh, absolutely. I think it's been known for a long time that a system like Sentinel is exactly what you want to build. You want to have a spacecraft that is interior to the Earth's orbit looking outwards because lots of the objects that can hit the Earth are interior to the Earth, right, towards the sun. So on the Earth, we can only look towards the nighttime sky, which is away from the sun. So you're sort of missing half or more of the available sky. Mm -hmm. So a system like Sentinel is is absolutely the best thing that you could possibly do. Mm -hmm. Uh, From the Earth, we are limited by having to look only during the nighttime, which Mm -hmm. is why we would miss something like the Chelyabinsk impactor. Mm Uh, but on the other hand, the Sentinel spacecraft will give uh, lots of years to decades of warning for a much larger object. I still like the idea of a system that's sort of like a, a you know hurricane weather monitoring system, but it's an asteroid monitoring system that's in an orbit around the Earth that allows it to find the smaller objects. So it works in a complementary fashion to what Sentinel does. Sentinel finds the bigger things that can wipe out states or countries. Oh, with years to decades of notice, and then we have this sort of asteroid impact monitoring system in orbit around the Earth to give sort of weeks, um, days to weeks notice for the smaller impacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you really want both. Um, in the same way as, you know, we have, uh, like, uh, our hurricane warning systems, we have multiple things. We have spacecraft tracking them. We have airplanes dropping uh, sensors in front of hurricanes, and we have weather buoys, right? We have all of that to track so we know where hurricanes are going. And it's not just one thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think in the end, uh, really, there's nothing more important than protecting our planet. This is our one planet. Uh, so, so with Sentinel, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious to ask you the sort of the million dollar question: How much is that going to actually cost? And then once mm-hmm. you answer that, I, I, I want to kind of delve into how do you see that actually getting funded? So, how, how much do you think that Sentinel? Yeah, is gonna... fir- first thing I should bring up is that uh, we are not a NASA project, right? Uh, so we are not funded by the government, uh, and that makes us very, very different. So uh, we're not being funded with public monies. Mm-hmm. We are being we are building our spacecraft uh, as a public charity, uh, in the same way that many of the large telescopes around the world have been built historically. So if you look at, for instance, the the Keck telescope on mm-hmm. Mauna Kea, mm-hmm. it's built by the Keck Foundation, which is the Keck family. If you look at uh, uh, Mount uh, Mount Hamilton in California where Lick Observatories, a guy named James Lick provided the money for that. Uh, if you look at... Uh, We've been covering like the 30-meter telescope, and I think 30-meter telescope is there's a some consortium of all these yeah, yeah, different countries. And they're and raising about $800 million or something like that to build that telescope. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that many large telescopes have been built this way, and we are doing the same thing except that our telescope doesn't sit on a mountaintop. It's going to orbit out in space, but it really is a large telescope. So we're following the same funding model as these other telescopes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to cost us about $250 million to build the telescope and about another $200 million to you know, pay for mission control, the people operating the rocket, all the things that launch it, et cetera, out over the next sort of 10 years after that. Um, so um, 
you have to ask yourself, is it worth, um, you know, this amount of $250 million or so uh, to potentially uh, prevent, you know, uh, the destruction of a, a city, a country, a state, or something like that, or larger? And, uh, you know, to put it into perspective, $250 million is about the price of a major freeway overpass. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's about the cost of, uh, did you ever see the movie Armageddon? Mm-hmm. Costs about two hundred million dollars in today's dollars to make the movie Armageddon. Okay, so uh, what I always like to say is, you can either make Armageddon or you can prevent it. It's your choice. Got it. So I want to I want to also ask you this this other tough question is why doesn't the government help fund it? But we'll hold that <laughs> thought. Uh, we'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with astronaut Ed Liu and astronomer Rob Jadicki, who both are working on detecting and deflecting asteroids before they hit Earth. And how, how are some of the other ways we might prepare for a collision of this nature? And again, how much would it cost and who would bear that? We'd, of course, love to hear your questions as well. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. It's an art exhibit to be sure, but instead of paintings and sculptures, it's subprime mortgages. It says, Dream Home Resource Center, we are here to share our housing information and experiences with you. All questions and comments are welcome. I'm Kai Rizdal. Home ownership and the Great Recession go on display next time on Marketplace. It's from 8 p.m. This evening at 6, right after Bite Marks Cafe. Feel the blues with Dion Boogie Scott as he pays tribute to his guitar hero, Eric Clapton. In the Atherton studio on Saturday, August 17th, Boogie, Hawaii's own blues guitarist and singer-songwriter, will perform his personal favorites in an evening with Clapton. That's August 17th at 7.30 p.m. You can make your reservations at hawaiipublicradio.org or at 955-8821 during business hours. Welcome back. This is Bike Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to astronaut Ed Liu and astronomer Rob Jedicke about protecting Earth from asteroids on a collision course. And, of course, the question that I'm, you know, dying to ask is about the, uh, the government funding. But, of course, before we do that, you can call us. Uh, and the number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands if you've got a question. And, of course, uh, right before the break, we were talking about funding and, and how the uh, Sentinel project is probably estimated to cost maybe about $250 million. And I think it's, you know, I think it's a worthwhile project. Uh, of course, I don't have $250 million. Maybe Elon Musk has the kind of money. But I know you've, Ed, you've, you've gone down various um, talks and presentations and discussions with a number of different people. I've I've seen you uh, on video with uh, I think it might have been a congressional um, hearing or something. And I know you've appealed to government. I mean, what is your response from government in terms of why they may or may not fund a project like this? Well, first off, uh, I, the real point is that they're not mm-hmm. okay. Um, and is that because what? There's no interest. There's just the will to to do this is not there. Um, it's a complicated thing the way funding works in Washington. The, one of the interesting things about it is that protecting the earth isn't considered science. Okay, When they rank scientific uh, missions at, at, for instance, NASA, 
They are ranked according to what's called uh, they get, they get a group of eminent astronomers together once every ten years and they write a report, which right, is right, the right. most important projects in astronomy. Okay, and they call it the decadal study, mm-hmm. and they base it upon what is the most important science projects. One of the things that is not considered in this as being science is protecting the Earth from destruction. Okay, uh-huh. so uh-huh. the the projects to protect the Earth from destruction don't end up anywhere as listed on there because they were not specifically eligible, okay? So when they pick the science projects and they choose which missions to fly, they essentially go down this list and say, well, what can we afford off this list? But nowhere on that list is, is anything towards protecting the planet because it's not science, okay? What, however you want to put it, oh, that's the way the system works, right. okay? Now, you can fight that. You can argue about how the funding should be. You can go to Washington, D.C. You can hire lobbyists, et cetera, et cetera. And we've chosen not to do that. There's The other way to solve the problem is to just go and solve the problem, right? There, and um, I'll tell a story from our lead fundraiser. It's a woman named Karen Putnam. She was associate dean at Harvard in charge of fundraising, and now she's, she's fundraising for the Sentinel mission. Uh, before that, she raised money for Central Park in New York City which was decaying badly in the 1990s. And she uh, raised the money from private citizens to fix Central Park. And uh, people would ask her the same question. They'd say to her, well, shouldn't the government pay for this? Isn't this a city park? What's our tax money going to? And she says, well, it is a government responsibility, but they're not doing it. So you have two choices. You could bemoan the fact that the government should be doing this and they're not, or you can just solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So she got people to raise about $200 million to fix Central Park, which was a wonderful thing. And it would guarantee you it would not have been done. To this day, Central Park would be a complete and utter mess if it wasn't for Karen Putnam and her ability to tell people, look, even though this is a government responsibility, you've got to step up. Mm -hmm. And so she's doing that for us. She's helping us tell that story of why, um, you you know, why people need to step up. Because it's either the government is or isn't responsible, at some point it's immaterial if it's not right, being done, right. right? So you can either bemoan that fact or you can say, you know what, I want to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And she's f- helping us find people that want to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Now, is there, um, is there something that's sort of coming together right now that now has put you sort of on the road to talk about this and kind of get the uh, public uh, interest in the Sentinel Project? Well, my life has always been on the road. <laughs> okay, <laughs> telling, or in telling, space. Telling people about uh, our project. So, uh, you know, it's great to be back here in Hawaii. I used to uh, be a member of the uh, Institute for Astronomy. Uh, oh, cool. And um, so uh, and I have a long-time interest in the subject, and it's good to be here with some of the world's experts like Rob here and other folks at the Institute. Um, they they are really are doing great work here. And you know, we're talking to Ed Liu, and he's an uh, astronaut, uh, been on the space station several times, and he's here talking about asteroids and the uh, B612 Foundation to raise money for Sentinel. And, of course, we have astronomer Rob Jadecki, who also is from the Institute for Astronomy, and he's working on uh, identifying these near-Earth objects and asteroids. And we, wanna, and we uh, also want to invite you to give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 1-877-941-3689. And we want to welcome Jimmy from Wahiwa to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hey, what's going on? Good. It's all well. Interesting talk about asteroids. Okay. Um, well, uh, 
I think what you guys are doing is really admirable, and um, I know most people who are listening to this right now are probably like, oh, oh, oh Lord, what do I do? Um, but there is something you can do. I stumbled across it when I was surfing the Internet. There's a program, it's a distributed computing program called um, Bionic that has applications where you could get um, – information from SETI or the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Mm-hmm. You get Mapping Milky Way. And they also have a program called Orbit at Home, which tracks um, the path of asteroids, um, a whole bunch of them. And since it's really hard for one particular computer to do that, what they do is break it down to smaller segments or per each computer and then uh, distribute it to a whole bunch of computers. It runs off your CPU, and you could have it running all the time, 24-7. I do on my computers. And uh, it's completely free. And what was the URL for that again? Um, it's it's well, from Berkeley University, if I'm uh, if I'm not mistaken. It's called Bionic Manager or Bionic Distributed Computing. Um, the one they had before was called Orbit at Home. You could Google search that, and I think they discontinued the Orbit servers and then switched over to another uh, distributed computing organization for the asteroid research. Okay, good, thanks good stuff, Jimmy. Thanks, thanks for sharing that. And uh, to clarify, it's it's not Bionic specifically. It looks like Bo Inc. Uh, B O I N C. I don't want to say Boink, but uh, oh, oh, well, I. There, there, yeah, I must have been saying it wrong no, no, no. time, but yeah, that's something <laughs> that each every each and every person listening to this radio can do, and uh, you can manage it on your computer. So it's taking up a hundred percent of your CPU all the time, or you could have it running in the background when you sleep or when you're web browsing for twenty percent, fifty percent, however much you dictate. Oh, sounds good. Thank you. And actually, I remember SETI at home, and mm-hmm. I, I managed a network at a previous job, and I had all our computers churning away to try to get our team higher up on that list of contributors. So this is an interesting one, boinc.berkeley.edu. Now, Rob, uh, we've been and we've covered on our show a lot of crowdsourced astronomy. Is that something that uh, you're excited about, or do you kind of worry about these amateurs getting all up in your business? <laughs> no, not all. It's something we really encourage. And uh, amateur astronomy is uh, amateur astronomers really make uh, big scientific contributions to the field. And I think that my field, in particular, asteroids, really benefits from astro- uh, amateur astronomers. A lot of the asteroids that are found by the PanSTARRS telescope, uh, you know, there just aren't enough professional telescopes to go around to follow up those asteroids and to track their orbits. And so we depend upon those amateur astronomers who go out there, and they've got you know almost professional equipment. And they take some uh, of those are amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they do fantastic work. They provide you know high quality positions, high quality uh, brightness measurements of the asteroids that, that are critical to doing the kind of science that we're doing, and critical to tracking the NEO's orbits and determining whether or not they're going to strike the Earth. You know that there was an astronaut. I mean, there was an uh, asteroid that was uh, headed to Jupiter. I mean, I forget this would be over five, six years ago, and it, uh, uh, it you know, it was well documented and and um, a lot of photographs. Wasn't that detected initially by an uh, like an amateur astronomer, if you recall? Are no, you talking about Shoemaker Levy? Yeah, Shoemaker Levy. Right. Yeah, so that was uh, that was about twenty years ago now. Oh, 20. Wow, <laughs> time goes by fast. And uh, and it was found by a uh, professional team. Uh-huh. In, uh and in, in Arizona and they were they were they were experts at what they were doing right mm-hmm. so that was a very interesting find there. well I think what was, and we covered it in our show was in September of last year it was a it was an impact on Jupiter that just happened to be captured by an amateur astronomer the best photo of that because he happened to be looking at that time right mm-hmm. now that, that that's absolutely true right and amateurs are making contributions to finding those kind of impacts of uh, smaller asteroids on Jupiter and even on the moon they they we actually uh 
amateur astronomers and professional astronomers train telescopes at the dark side of the moon, the side of the moon that's not lit up as seen from the Earth. And you can see little flashes of light when a small asteroid impacts the surface there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's being monitored by amateurs. They're finding it, and they're, pro- they're providing this information to the professionals to do analysis on it. You know, we have a, uh, another caller patiently waiting on the line. We want to welcome Ted from Palolo to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Uh, hi, hi, gentlemen. Hi. Uh, my, my question is, um, has there ever been any evidence or uh, historical record of asteroids hitting the sun itself? And, and would that... Um, create uh, the solar flares that create uh, uh, the electromagnetic pulse that affects Earth. I'll, I'll take my comment off the air. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Ted. So, uh, uh, Rob or Ed, I mean, can something get close enough to the sun to impact it, given the energy that's coming off of it? Yeah, things do run into the sun. They have, uh, you can you can look it up. Um, there's a uh, spacecraft called SOHO that has seen multiple uh, things like comets and stuff like that hit the sun, mm-hmm. uh, which comets are basically other objects they come a little further out in the solar system than asteroids but essentially they you know small objects are running into the sun um they don't cause solar flares they're way too small mm. to do anything like that the amount of energy in a solar flare is absolutely phenomenally large um but uh, it does happen and we have records of it happening now you know i've been dying to ask this question but uh you know when you do find you have sentinel it's out there it's detecting all these uh, large asteroids that potentially could hit the earth you don't want to deploy Bruce Willis, right? I mean, there's other technology, and you had alluded to it very briefly, and I want you to talk a little bit more about how would you go about nudging that asteroid and the technology that would be involved, and at what point in time would we deploy that kind of, uh, let's say, satellite or, or uh, space spaceship? The first thing you need to know is that the earlier you find something, the less you need to nudge it to make it hit the Earth, okay? Mm-hmm. So a typical asteroid... Uh, Travels around the sun about 6 billion miles in a decade, okay? So about 600 million miles a year, same as the Earth. And uh, so if you think about it, that's like the, you know, let's say you find an asteroid 10 years before it's going to hit the Earth. It has 6 billion miles to travel before it hits the Earth. That is a tremendous hole-in-one, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But we have the ability to measure the the trajectory of these asteroids well enough that you can actually tell, hey, that one's going to hit on this date and this time right here, okay? So that thing has 6 billion miles to go. Think about how little bit of a wind it would take uh, to make a hole-in-one shot from 6 billion miles away miss. Not a lot, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, whereas if you were only standing about, uh, you know, 5 feet from the the hole, uh, you know, it's hard to make that miss, right? So... The further you are away, the easier it is to nudge something and make it to miss. So let's let's talk actual numbers here. These things are moving around the sun at an average speed of between 60 and 100,000 miles per hour. Pretty darn fast. If you can change the speed of an asteroid from by about the speed that an ant walks, which is about a millimeter per second. So look down on the ground, find yourself a slow-moving ant, okay? <laughs> That's about the speed change you need to give an asteroid to make it miss the Earth from that distance, mm-hmm. okay? So think... 60,000 miles an hour plus the speed that an ant walks or minus the speed that an ant walks. If you can change it by that much, then you can make that asteroid miss the Earth, okay? So that's the name of the game. And it all depends upon being able to measure the orbit accurately enough so that you know which one, which asteroid you need to do this to, okay? And to do that, all you really simply need to do is essentially run into that uh, asteroid with a small spacecraft. Just run into it. 
Oh, so you would actually collide with it? Just collide with it, yeah. I thought there was some some technology of using some uh, um, sort of gravitational impact. You could do that, too. You can do uh, to do more finely change the trajectories, but um, uh, the surprising thing to most people is that the deflecting of asteroids is something that's probably easier than finding the asteroid. Mm, mm. The, the harder step is actually likely going to be finding all these asteroids. And again, step two of deflecting the asteroids is kind of worthless if you haven't done step one of finding them first. Right, right. Got it. Well, this is a fascinating topic of, that we, we would certainly like to learn more about. If somebody wanted to, there was this talk tomorrow. We have Roy Gal from the Institute for Astronomy very quickly. What are the details for tomorrow's talk? The talk is tomorrow night at 7.30 p.m. at UH Manoa's Kennedy Theater. Uh, the title is Astronomy Saves the World. Ed Lou will be telling us all about it. Um, get your tickets online at uhifa.ticketbud.com, and we will webcast it at connect.arc.nasa.gov slash uhifa. If you go to the IFA website, you can, uh, which is ifa.hawaii.edu, you can find all the information you need. And you probably, you, um, right? will you be tweeting out the links? Yes, I can uh, put that out. Follow us at UHIFA on Twitter or on Facebook. Sounds Fantastic. good. Exciting now, stuff. Ed, if somebody wanted to learn more about the B612 Foundation, where would they go? Uh, we have a website called B612foundation.org. Okay. Fantastic. So, all one word, B612foundation.org. And Rob, where can we find more stuff about PanStars? Uh, well, PanStars, you'd have to do a Google search for it. I'm not <laughs> okay, exactly sure. Okay. What, about, but what about Atlas? Atlas has got a really great uh, site address. It's fallingstar.com. Fantastic. Easy enough to remember. Ed Liu is a former astronaut and CEO of the B612 Foundation. And Rob Jedeke is an ast- astronomer over at the Institute for Astronomy, specializing in near-Earth objects. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank Sounds you very good. much. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll find out about technology to help protect monk seals. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And I'm at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Sentinel, and the song is called Avalanche. Well, we're not hoping for an avalanche of asteroids, but we'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marsh Cafe. Bite Marsh Cafe.